Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with filmmaker David Grubin and host Michael Lerner as they discuss David's film, Free Renty. David Grubin, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Yeah, thanks, Michael. David, uh, we just watched a screening of uh, your new film, uh, Free Renty. And um, Free Renty is an extraordinary film. It tells the story of Tamara Lanier, an African-American woman determined to force Harvard University to cede possession of daguerreotypes of her great-great-great-grandfather, an enslaved man named Renty. The daguerreotypes were commissioned in 1850 by a Harvard professor to, quote, prove the superiority of the white race. The images remain emblematic of America's failure to acknowledge the cruelty of slavery, the racist science that supported it, and the white supremacy that continues to infect our society today. The film focuses on Lanier and tracks her lawsuit against Harvard and features attorney Benjamin Crump, author Ta-Nehisi Coates, and scholars Arila Azoulay and Tina Camp. Forgive me if I didn't get the pronunciation exactly right. The film is extraordinarily powerful. Um, and so let me just start with the fundamental question. Why did you make this film? My cousin is one of the attorneys, um, Mike Koskoff. And Mike called me and he said, um, I have something, a case that's going to interest you. And when I, when he told me about the case, it's, it's immediately compelling. Um, the issues it's going to raise. Um, but I, I didn't want to make the case until I met Tammy. And when you meet Tammy, you see a woman with a great honesty, integrity, and determination. And so I knew, I knew we could tell this story. I also looked into the eyes of Renty. That daguerreotype is so moving and so powerful. And, and, and I think it was Renty and his great, great, great granddaughter that really brought me in. And it was Mike who died during the making of the film who introduced me. Mm. And uh, what was the journey like to make mm. the film? You decided to make it. You sought funding. Um, you got some, mm -hmm. uh, but not enough to cover the cost of the mm, film. Yeah. So clearly this was uh, a work of the heart. Yeah. How long did it take you to make it? So it took about three years. We started six months before the lawsuit was filed and went right down to the, to the, to the presentation, to the trial court. Mm -hmm. And uh, during that time, um, my own feelings and ideas evolved. Because in the beginning, it was a story of a, a David and Goliath story, right? Here is a woman who is challenging the, the wealthiest, the most prestigious, uh, the oldest university in America. Um, and here she is going up against them. 
But by the time I'd finished the film, I realized it was a story at the intersection of white supremacy, sure, cultural reparations, um, sexual violence, uh, institutional racism, history of these, of these colleges and then um, history of America. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, I felt that all those, those, that whole story is being told through one woman's journey. Hmm. It became very personal. And um, I, you know, you become committed to the story and Harvard wouldn't talk to me. So the more and more I did this, I was with the story, the more and more I became committed to, to Tammy and uh, the truth that she was pursuing. What has been the reception? How long has the film, how long have you been showing it at film festivals? And so so we, just, we really just started. And um, I think it's a kind of, of a film that really can touch people because it has so many different areas. I didn't mention the law. Uh, it's gonna be shown at UCLA Law School, but it can be shown in museums. It's been shown already at Harvard and Brown and NYU and Yale, Dartmouth. Um, and, and more, I think it's a, it's, it's a really a jumping off place for a lot of discussions, the le not the least of which is people's own heritage, their own uh, backgrounds, both African-American and white. And what has the response been so far? I think it really touches people. And, and, and again, it depends where they're coming from. If they're a lawyer, they get interested in the law and, and morality and this kind of case. But if it's, uh, I, I think for most people, it makes them look into their own, think about their own history, uh, their own past. You know, I mean, from a, I'm Jewish. From the Jewish point of view, I've seen a film called The Eternal Jew. I actually interviewed the guy who made it. It was a Nazi. Uh, he intercut Jews with rats. He took pic images of Jews uh, and put, you know, uh, beards and did horrible things to them. And I'm thinking, well, what if one of those people was my grandfather? Could be, could have been. Uh, how would I feel? I could identify in that way with Tammy. And I think people look at it from lots of different point of views. Um, uh, if your ancestors were slaveholders, that's a whole other thing. And, and a very interesting thing happened in the making of the film. I called up the ancestor of the people who had the plantation where, where, where Renty was enslaved. Tammy, Tammy had met them in her research. I spoke to a woman who said she'd like to be interviewed. And then she called back and said, my family doesn't want me to do this. I said to her, well, you know, you are not a slaveholder and Tammy isn't a slave. And that's what this is all about. If we're going to have reconciliation and we need to be able to talk. But she couldn't, she couldn't get that piece of it out of her mind. She was ashamed of her history and couldn't reconcile um, that, that piece of it to, to talk. And I think she might've done it, but the family couldn't do it. So think how deep the, the shame runs. It's not that long ago. Hmm. The daguerreotypes themselves are so powerful. Mm. And they're not only of Renty, 
but of Renty and his daughter, mm -hmm. and of Jack, is that his name? Yeah, Jack. And his daughter. Yeah. And the women are stripped to the waist, mm -hmm. and so you see their breasts, mm -hmm. and the, the uh, expressions on all of their faces <sighs> are, yeah. are so powerful. Yeah. Um, so <sighs> tell us about um, what was the case that Lanier's extraordinary attorneys were arguing against Harvard and what was Harvard's case and what did the judge ultimately decide? Mm. So Harvard argued that it's settled law that a photograph is owned by the photographer. So if I take your picture, I own it. I can't use it publicly without a release from you but I own the photograph. The, the judge took that idea and in the end said, yes, that's, that's the settled law. Now the, and, and dismissed the case, which means that um, they, 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 have, they have to make an appeal to Tammy's side. Uh, Tammy's, uh, of course, is arguing that She's saying, well, who owns the violence of the past, is the way she puts it. Why should the perpetrators of violence own, the, own these pictures? And that's the, the case in the nutshell that, that her lawyers made. What's interesting is that when it went, it's already gone to the Massachusetts Supreme Court and the verdict hasn't been rendered yet. If you go to our website, the, the free, the, all, the, all, the, all these films have websites. Yeah, right. We've got ours, Free Rent A Film. If you go there, you will see the arguments being made and you'll see the judges pounding, pummeling the Harvard lawyer who was surprised. They are saying to him the logical, obvious thing. How could it be settled law that the photographer owns the image in every case. Suppose the photographer, they say, is a rapist and then took pictures of his victim. Does he own that? What if the photographer is a child pornographer? Does the photographer own that? And by extension, of course, what if the, the person is an enslaved person who was forced to disrobe, to, um, to forced to sit there and deny their own humanity for the picture, who should own it? So it would seem to me with those questions that Harvard may in fact lose this case. Um, we don't know yet. I, you know, it's been maybe three or four months. Um, but that's, that's how it's come down in, 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 the, in the world of, uh, of the law. Meanwhile, at Harvard, your film shows the students organizing mm -hmm. to force Harvard to uh, release the daguerreotypes uh, to Lanier. To yes, the yeah. undergraduate, you know, the council, the student government, they all voted mm -hmm. <laughs> for Lanier. Because, the, you know, the, the president said the law is on our side, but that's not going to go with students who are interested in ethics and morality. And um, in a way, he put his foot in his mouth, you know, because that's not what Harvard should be teaching. And they all knew it. Now, there's a very interesting point that you capture in the conversations between Tamara Lanier and her attorneys, both of whom are extraordinary, in which they're trying to decide 
were they to frame this mm -hmm. in the context of reparations or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, the attorney Crump, who is you know, a, a very uh, famous African-American attorney who's taken a lot of the great cases on, at first he makes the argument mm -hmm. that you shouldn't go there. The reparations mm -hmm. uh, should not be used. Mm -hmm. By the end, he's come right. around to, uh, yeah. to that position. Yeah. So the whole thing is being framed mm -hmm. in the context specifically of Black Lives Matter and reparations. You so see, it's being yes. framed as, as an iconic mm -hmm. case. Now, you didn't know that at the beginning. That's the great thing about documentaries. You don't know what's going to happen and things are evolving. And uh, I love what, you know, when Ta-Nehisi Coates says, I think they should make it reparations. He says, you know, that's what we're fighting for. You have to remember what we're fighting about. But these are lawyers and they want to, they have to represent their client. They want to win the case. Over those three years, reparations became something that's more, it's being talked about. It's become mainstream to talk mm -hmm. about it. And so they were able to, they felt like they could do this without, you know, without jeopardizing Tammy's case. Mm -hmm. So it is amazing. It's the same thing with, um, you know, how things turn up. Who could imagine that the descendants of Agassiz would turn up and support Lanier? It's, it, it's so moving to me uh, to see them together. Um, it's it's uh, 43 of his descendants came out in favor of Lanier. Who could have imagined that would happen? So let's go back and talk about Agassiz for a moment mm. because we haven't talked, who was he? Mm. And he uh, ordered these photographs to be taken. What was he trying to prove? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was the context there? So he's a, he's a, a citizen of, of Switzerland and he comes over here to America and um, he's already fairly well known uh, for having discovered the Ice Age and written about fossils and fish and things which are important. Um, and Harvard, uh, he gave some lectures and Harvard said, hey, we want to hire this guy. He was very charming. He was, you know, friends with Emerson and that whole circle of people. Uh, he marries uh, the woman who eventually found, the, she's the first president of Radcliffe. So he's a very connected guy. Um, he also uh, is a racist, uh, as many, many people were. And we have the letters that he wrote to his mother where he says horrible things about African-Americans. And so he is trying to prove a theory which really grows out of his racism. He's trying to show that species evolved separately. He's, he, you know, Darwin hasn't uh, published uh, his, 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 you know, book yet. And uh, so it's up for grabs how people evolved. And he's saying everyone, people, the species evolved separately, the black species evolved separately and is inferior. He's going to prove that in a, in a, in a way by taking photographs of African-Americans or Africans who've just come over that are, because you know, they, they get, there's so much mixing of the races. He wants a pure African, take a picture, measure them, measure their heads, their bodies, and that's going to prove 
his, his theory. And so he takes these images, he, takes, he commissions these photographs, and uh, what's interesting is he never quite follows through with these measurements. I mean, he talks about them some and it kind of goes away. Um, but he sticks to this even after, after Darwin. And he, he teaches the next generation of scientists at Harvard. Uh, and the next generation gets taught again. So Harvard has these people that are supporting eugenics. And it comes right out of, of Agassiz's uh, science, which is based on this racism that, uh, through which he saw the world. Meanwhile, Tamara Lanier and her team trace down Agassiz's descendants. <laughs> and there's this extraordinary set of scenes where uh, Agassiz's descendants come together and say, we're with Tamara, we want Harvard to release these yeah. daguerreotypes yeah. to Tamara Lanier. And, and press conferences and so on. How many yeah. of them were there uh, of the descendants? There's like Well, the 43 signed the, 43 the, the letter signed. to, to, yeah. to uh, the president. And, um, you know, a bunch of them come to this, uh, to the press conference. And just to see them together, I mean, you see how, the, how important it is uh, for white and black people to talk to each other. And uh, here they are, you know from two different worlds connecting. Mm -hmm. uh, because even Tammy isn't a slave and they aren't the Agassiz. Mm. And, and yet there's so much guilt and shame that it's hard for people to talk. So here's a key question. Uh, you're a white Jewish filmmaker and you're making a film uh, about uh, a black experience. And we're in a context today where the issues of cultural appropriation are very, very real. Uh, I would believe that if this had been made by a black filmmaker, PBS probably would have welcomed it. That's my guess. Uh, you, uh, PBS did not welcome your film. What is your experience and what was your thinking about making this film as a white Jewish filmmaker in the face of knowing uh, the whole cultural context of telling this story? Well, first I have to say that I was probably naive um, as a child of the, of the 60s and someone who was active in civil rights um, and being invited in by my cousin who was also active and who has you know, no, no hesitation about working for clients who are African-American. I was kind of naive, I, I think, I have to say, uh, but over the, the period of time when the film was being made, it became more and more clear that there was, um, th there was a, lot of, a lot of concern about white people making films about African-Americans. Will, will they, are they exploiting them? Could I understand them? And I, I think really, um, I, f I felt like this is Tammy's story, and my job was to listen, and to listen very, very carefully. And Tammy always welcomed me. Um, then Crom Tomahawksy, that you know, nobody, uh, nobody said stay out. Everyone felt comfortable, 
And I think it's because I was carefully listening um, um, and, and remembering that it was her story, it wasn't my story. Um, it, it was, I have to say one tricky piece of it is that my dear cousin died and we knew, did not know that he was ill. And that's kind of, I didn't want his story to suddenly take you away from Tammy's but I do feel it stays together. And why I bring it up is because this is a white guy working with a black guy. That is Crump and Koskoff. It isn't Ben on his own. It's Mike and Ben doing it. And then you've got the Agassiz and Tammy. So it, in a way it models, the film models a black and white people working together for Tammy. Uh, and, and I, so I guess that's my film is like that. I'm mm-hmm. I'm doing this film for Tammy. Um, when I say that, I hesitate only because I know how much I enjoy making films. So in that sense, I'm doing it for myself. But I think when people see it, they're thinking of me. I don't I don't want them to think of me. I want them to think of Tammy and her case, and and what it means for America. And all of the principles supported you making the film. Exactly. So there was no hesitation on the part of Tammy or any of the principles about you making the film. No, and obviously you couldn't make the film unless that was the case, and I wouldn't want to. Um, I wouldn't want to be... um, I wouldn't want to make a film about the Ku Klux Klan, let's say, if they invited me. I don't want to. I, I, I want to... I wouldn't want to spend three years with the Klan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Some people do, and they make a, can make a great film. Um, but I, I, I have a lot of empathy, a lot of caring for this subject, and I, sort of, I prefer that. Mm-hmm. to um, And so we all connected. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you can't make a film like this without that, without, mm-hmm. the, without trust. You have a real... Um, history of having made uh, a whole set of extraordinary films. And um, I just want to, you know, give a little of your biography. Uh, Your biographies for the PBS series American Experience include Abraham and Mary Lincoln, A House Divided, LBJ, Truman, TR, The Story of Theodore Roosevelt, and FDR, which many people believe has set a standard for television biography. Your five-part series for PBS Healing and the Mind with Bill Moyers has won many awards and the companion book for which you were the executive editor rose to number one on the New York Times bestseller list and remained on the list for 32 weeks. The reason we know each other is that um, uh, you and Bill Moyers selected the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program for the fifth of this five-part series, Healing in the Mind. I just looked it up. It came out in 1993, was the year. <laughs> and you and I and your wife, Joan, have been dear friends for ever since 1992, which is when you were making it for 30 years. Um, and I, I, I think it's important to say that Uh, You know, I was reflecting earlier today, I'm almost certain that Commonweal would not be here in the way it is here today had you not made that film. Uh, You you put Commonweal on the map. You put the Cancer Help Program on the map. 
uh, you and Bill Moyers played a critical role in mainstreaming mind-body health, which before that series was this sort of wacko out there thing. And so in, in doing this, um, you really not only put Commonweal on the map, you put mind-body health on the map. And for my, me, I was actually part of the group with Charlie Halpern and uh, Rob Lehman and others who came together wanting to mainstream mind-body health and who uh, made the decision to support the film series. So this is very much my story as well as your story. Um, and here we are 30 years later, uh, still friends, still standing, and, um, and uh, engaged in this most fundamental issue of mainstreaming the American racial experience. Mm. Um, so um, your contribution to this and to our history at Commonweal is really seminal. Well, it, it's very moving for me to show mm -hmm. this year. It, it, it's very moving, and, and I really thank you for welcoming mm -hmm. me. I, I mean, I remember if it was on in 1993, we probably started making it in 1991, and yeah. they probably filmed it back then. Yeah. But there was a a lot of research that was done first. And when you say that there was a lot of wacko, I mean, we met a lot of wackos. <laughs> and or people that were making claims that they couldn't support. It's interesting how today you have acupuncture every, everywhere, you know, meditation everywhere. When we met John Kabat-Zinn, who was in the series, he was a guy working in this stress reduction clinic in Massachusetts. But you felt he was the real thing. Mm -hmm. And it's the same when we met you and, and Rachel Remen. We knew you weren't making any claims that were outrageous. Or, this is about healing. Mm -hmm. That's why we wanted to be here, because it was about healing. And with John, I remember him saying, uh, you, you see he's working this clinic. A guy has this terrible back pain. And in the end, the guy says, you know, there are days when I don't have the back pain. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not like he was suddenly up and, and dancing with Balanchine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's by, by, by making the claims very solid and uh, grounded that um, the series does work. And today, mm -hmm. um, look at, I mean, Commonweal is, a, is an important center for all kinds of wonderful things. And mm -hmm. when I think of John Kabat-Zinn, some of the others, you know, they're doing great work. Uh, and and I, I feel like we just did a lot of research and found found you guys. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting here right on the porch of the main building at Commonweal. And upstairs, your wife, also our beloved friend Joan Grubin, is uh, curating her third uh, exhibit, uh, art <laughs> exhibit at Commonweal. You're listening to a TNS conversation with filmmaker David Grubin and host Michael Lerner. Uh, I also am so grateful that so many times when I have been in New York, I would have dinner with you and Joan, our mutual friend Kathy Goodman, and the late Rabbi Rachel Cowan, uh, who, with Charlie Halpern's support, uh, became the head of uh, Jewish affairs at the Nathan Cummings Foundation. And Charlie and Rachel played such a central role 
in uh, bringing contemplative practice into the Jewish community, as well as uh, moving the whole field of contemplative practice forward. So there's this long, rich 31, 32-year history of, uh, of uh, I would just say, gratitude for knowing each other, um, sitting around the dinner table at your house. You and Joan loved to memorize poetry together. <laughs> and uh, so we would all exchange poems. And uh, it's such a... Uh, rich uh, part of our uh, life experience. I just want to also mention that when you filmed the Cancer Health Program, we hadn't finished renovating Pacific House yet. So uh, the uh, Cancer Health Program took place in the living room uh, of Kohler House, one of the small houses. And at that time, the uh, equipment that you were using, it was film. It was <laughs> actually right. film, it wasn't video. And each uh, little uh, thing lasted only, what, 10 minutes? Or yeah, so? 10 to 11 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And so, and you had to film everything because mm -hmm. in the cancer health program, you didn't know when something important would happen. So you were carrying this heavy camera on your shoulder, holding it absolutely steady. And you had an assistant who was feeding you a new, uh, you know, what are they called? Yeah, uh, a, a, a roll of film. Yeah, a, yeah, a new roll of film every 10 minutes. Yeah. And by the end of one of the two-hour uh, morning sessions, the back of your T-shirt, I remember it so vividly, was just drenched with sweat from the effort of holding this camera <laughs> on your shoulder rock solid for, for two hours at a time. Now you're making me feel very old. <laughs> I, I don't think I could do that again. Plus, when you think of how much things have changed in 30 years and how, how issues have evolved and how the Commonwealth's evolved, again, I, I feel very old, but it makes me wonder, you know, 30 years from now, we just looked at a, a film about um, Harvard and, and uh, the suit over these daguerreotypes and raises all these, these, these issues of, of, of racial justice. Where is it going to go? It's such a critical question. And just to mention again that uh, starting uh, this Sunday night, we begin our 213th mm. week-long Common Rail Cancer mm. Health Program. Uh, so um, what you filmed very early on in our experience of doing the work continues. And in fact, uh, Oren Slasberg, our executive director, will tell you that the Cancer Health Program remains at the heart of Commonweal's mm. work. It's certainly been at the heart of my life mm. works, of my colleague Jennifer Stowell, who's here. Uh, so, uh, you know, such a profound, profound issue. So I want to uh, turn to a, a couple of our friends and colleagues here. Uh, Marty Krasny is here with us. Uh, Marty, any reflections on... Uh, having uh, listened to and watched the film? Well, I, I want to start with a question, which is, were there any predecessor efforts or parallel efforts before Tammy? Did anyone else try to bring a case against Harvard's ownership? Do other institutions have similar properties? And has anybody been able to extricate any of those? To your knowledge, this isn't necessarily what you've looked at, but I just wonder what you know about it. Well, of course, now 
um, that is, um, that's happening everywhere, right? Benin sculptures uh, in, in, in England uh, and actually at the Smithsonian are now going back. So there's a lot. If you remember Ariella Azule in the film is a very eloquent spokesman for what, for, for these objects that are being held that were taken. And so there, there, there's, you know, the, the, there's a lot that's happening now in that world. But this was all evolving while we were making this film three years ago, just in three years. Um, before that, there were issues that came up. The, the artist Carrie Mae Weems had used those images in, her, in, a, in, a, in a work of art. And she refused to, to sign the, the document. You have to sign. I... I um, I, when I made a film about Abraham and Mary Lincoln, I needed images of, of enslaved people. I paid Harvard $1,700 for two of those images. They licensed them. They were making money. Carrie Mae Weems uh, took those images and said, I'm not paying you. And they said they would sue her. And she said, she's a very f famous artist today. And she, and she said to them, come on ahead, you know, let's see how you'll do. Uh, and then they backed down and they made some kind of arrangement. So these Im images are now, um, you know, in, in objects and documents. There's a lot of discussion about them. And of course, as they point out in the film, Harvard doesn't want to give these images up because if they give this one up, it opens the door to, to 30 million objects that they hold. Well, that was my follow-on question, yeah. is that clearly these are a handful of important, but very specific images, but the the opening of the possibility of not only what they hold in the Peabody and elsewhere, but just what what the institution represents, and whether or not how much it was built on um, co-optation of one sort or another. And once this trickles forward, if it does, they're vulnerable all the way around. Yes. Other uh, thoughts or questions? Jennifer Stoll, yeah. director of the Retreat Center, senior staff in the Cancer Help Program. Who would like to say first off, I've said this to you before, David uh, and Michael, this is such an honor to show this film here. Can't even tell you. So um, for the information of my own context, Michael had asked if I wanted to speak about my own family history. Um, and I hesitate to do so because my ancestors, great, great, great grandfather, owned several plantations and I discovered the secret of those historical papers in the late 80s and 90s. And have since been sitting with those papers and working with the reality of my own ancestry over many, many years. And my hesitation, Michael, to speak about that now at first is not just because of the shame and sad history that one in, has inherited. It isn't just that. It's because I realized that I lacked capacity as a human being yet and as a white person to fully be able to begin to comprehend the magnitude of the history that we all have inherited. Even those words that I speak aren't big enough for me to possibly express the heart of this. 
So David's film, your film to me, touches on so many issues that encompass this subject, the inheritance of all of us really as white people in this country, um, that it's an educational tool unlike anything I have seen, and I've been studying this field for two decades, right? And I'll just say one more thing, and that is that the person I am studying with deeply right now is a teacher named Resma Menachem, uh, also an author of a book called My Grandmother's Hands, and he teaches a course called Somatic Abolitionism. His theory and sense, as, as with others, but especially his, is that trauma travels through the body, through the DNA, the ancestral heritage, decontextualized and lands on all of us. And in that learning, he says that the charge of race physiologically is so great that we can't even begin to see each other, a white person and an African-American or any person of color. So the point of mentioning that is to try to just express a small bit of what one of Louis Agassiz's granddaughters mentioned when she so movingly said that for years their family and her generation hadn't been able to really face her great-great-great-grandfather's mm -hmm. legacy of poisonous eugenics and race theory, but she finally began to turn towards mm -hmm. that truth. Mm -hmm. And, and so much a part of the historical depth of what we're going through as a culture now is that we're all forced to and beginning to turn towards the truth of our history. Mm -hmm. Your film shows that in the most moving way, David, mm -hmm. as well as anything I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And it helps all of us heal as we face that truth and to begin to embrace the charge in our own bodies about race. Mm -hmm. and. Your film is a gift because it delivers that truth, that tragic truth, to us in a way that we can begin to receive. Mm. So for many, many reasons, I could go on and I won't, but just to thank you so much again and to Michael for having this and Kira Epstein for orchestrating it and Ken for filming it. It's a really a seminal moment in our history, I think. Thank you. So I'm going to take take it away from this was a very, that was a very dramatic and deep uh comment and i'm gonna bring the the level up a little bit i i just was curious about the music and the sound because to me that was something that um you know the the part the music that i heard really helped me to open my heart i mean it was just a it was very supportive of the message that you um this seemed to want to convey and I'm curious about how that happened. You know, how did you choose the music? Who are these artists? And who who puts this together for you? Was it um, a collaboration, I'm assuming? Beautiful yeah, question. Yes. Yeah. That's Kira Epstein speaking. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you for asking. I'm very glad that it, that it meant something to you because it meant something to us. So I've worked with the composer Michael Bacon, who's Kevin Bacon's brother. They have a gig, Bacon Brothers. People have seen them. <laughs> I've worked with him for years, 30 years. Um, I'm sure he did the film, whatever music we use at Commonwealth. For this film, I said, Michael, we really, we should, we should, we should have an African-American. He said, I know just the person. Huh. Michael teaches now at Lehman College in, in New York City. 
And he said, I've got this guy, Isaac of Music. He's like 24. I can't believe his last name is Music. <laughs> That's the way I know him. And he came on board. Now, Michael's got lots and lots of experience. And Isaac Music is a black guy who's very tied into the, to these movements. And Michael has a gift. He really let Isaac do what he needed to do. And the two, I mean, Michael's got all the technical experience. Or he knows how to make sure that the music is going to get in sync and everything else and recording. But Isaac, was he's just terrific. And he... He, you know, he he didn't he spoke right up. He and when Michael, if if Michael would give us a piece of music and it didn't quite work, I would tell Michael because I worked with him for years. He's not going to take it personal. <laughs> he said, "Okay, let's give it to Isaac." And I think there's more Isaac in here than Michael. So it was a great again a great collaboration between a black a young black guy and a white guy. And in this case. You know, it's wonderful because Michael became a mentor for this man who's going to go on and do great things, I assure you. You know, David, I have a guess about this film, which is that um, it will turn out to be whatever the Massachusetts Supreme Court decides. Uh, and one can imagine that if the Massachusetts Supreme Court rules in favor of tomorrow, that it will be appealed by Harvard to the Supreme Court. And one can imagine that given the current context of the Supreme Court, they may lose. So I'm just guessing. I, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just to yeah. say the one thing I learned about the law is that they appealed to the Massachusetts Supreme Court to keep it out of the Supreme yeah. Court. Yes. <laughs> In other words, it doesn't have to go that far. So yeah. if the Massachusetts Supreme Court rules in favor of Harvard, is over because the case is dismissed. But if they rule in favor of uh, Tammy, that means that the case can go to trial. My sense is that Harvard does not want um, a Crump in front of a jury. Yeah. And so they will then try to settle. Um, they already are changing their tune. They now are saying in their publicity, they wouldn't talk to me because they couldn't say anything, but now they're saying that Oh, they, they've been looking for a place for the, for the daguerreotypes because they're afraid after the pummeling that their lawyer took. We don't know, but I guess I, I'm, I'm saying that uh, um, I bet you they'll try to find a way to settle rather than have a jury trial. Yeah, interesting. You know, in that context, wow. there's now a significant Sally Hemings Center at Monticello, mm. and it could be that that would be a compromise for Harvard that might work all the way around if, if, well, if the mm -hmm. um, Lanier yeah. family would permit that. So, you know, Tamara Lanier's, her position has always been, I want to be able to choose. It's not like she wants to put it up on her mantelpiece. And by the way, it's not a photograph. It's a daguerreotype is like a, an object. It's not even a negative. Anyway, she, so I think one obvious place is the, uh, African American Museum at the Smithsonian, yeah. the, uh, something at Monticello. There's a new museum going up in uh, in Charleston. Uh, so um, it's mainly she. Brian she Stevenson's place also in Montgomery. So yes, exactly. So there's a lot of places, but she just feels like Harvard doesn't deserve to have them. Mm -hmm. At this point, she's <laughs> she's upset. Mm -hmm. 
just to mention, did I say this to you at the beginning, uh, that this afternoon, as I understand it, Biden and mm -hmm. Harris mm. are in the Rose Garden or were announcing the final federal passage of the anti-lynching law, for <laughs> God's sakes. Amazing, didn't it? As a hate crime. Isn't that amazing? Took 100 yeah, years. Took all to that time. So on this day. David, um, this has been extraordinary. Um, any final reflections on, essentially, you've made so many great films. I consider you uh, a great filmmaker. Um, what does this film mean in your life? What does it mean to you to have made this film? You know, I, I guess it, it connects up my my youth, you know, when I was at Selma and I was teaching in the South and got, got myself arrested somehow. And, and so I had the, those commitments very early. And then to come back uh, in this new context and try to say something about where things have gone. Um, since the, the great achievements of the civil rights days, you know, there obviously is plenty of room left for more. And that's what this is about. So I feel connecting, connecting up. David Grubin, thank you for putting Commonweal on the map with your <laughs> films, Healing in the Mind, and the final segment, uh, uh, wounded Healers about the Commonweal Cancer Help Program in 1993. Um, thank you for 30 years of friendship, you and your wife Joan, who is doing her third exhibit here at Commonweal as we speak. Uh, thank you for a life work of extraordinary films. And thank you for the immense power of free rentee. And may it contribute. Uh, to bringing uh, justice and healing mm -hmm. uh, to our uh, deeply troubled country. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh, Th thank you very much. And I, I just want to say that the reason I think that Commonweal could continue to grow and evolve is because the values of that cancer health program, that, that's the values of Commonweal. You know, you started there and you've never forgotten those mm. principles. And if you hold on to those, you can do anything and you've never forgotten that. Well, I think what is central to that and what Rachel Remen is so good at doing and, and what we aspire to, or in Schlossberg and all of us, is, and this is something Parker Palmer does, uh, the great Quaker activist, we try to speak to people at the soul level. And the soul level uh, is, is beyond politics. Mm -hmm. It's beyond left or right. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is rooted in the deepest shared values of being human. Whether you're religious or spiritual or secular or left or right, um, people want their children to be okay. Uh, you know, um, those, uh, those sort of immortal dimensions of being human that were given 
hearts, heads, and hands, you know, hearts for kindness and compassion, heads for whatever wisdom we can gather, and hands to be of service and to put into action what our hearts and our minds tell us. And if we can talk to people at that level, uh, we go beyond left and right, and we go beyond the things that divide us. And I think one of the things that Free Renty does is it speaks to us at that soul level. Um, and I think all your films do that. You know, you, you, you come at it from a place that is, uh, that is beyond what divides us. And really, uh, you touch people in that way. So I think that's what we share, is that commitment um, to what unites us as human beings, what brings us together. And I think Free Renty is an extraordinary contribution to that body of work, which in our troubled world, we need more than anything else. Thank so. you, Michael. Thank, thank you for, yeah. for doing this. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with filmmaker David Grubin and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water could kill my body, water could...